Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before you hear the next great podcast, we'd like to tell you about a new 90-second show which distills everything that President Donald Trump has said in the last 24 hours. You're going to lose a number of people to the flu. It's called What Has He Said Now? and is available at wherever you get this podcast. Uh, death totals, our numbers per million people are really uh, very, very strong. We're, we're very proud of the job we've done. Look for a link in this here podcast description or search for What Has He Said Now in all the usual places. And welcome Spurs fans around the world to another Spurs show, another lockdown Spurs show. I'm del- I, my name's Theo Delaney and I'm delighted to welcome debutant Stuart Meister. Hello. How are you, Stuart? Very well indeed, thank you. Welcome, welcome for the first time. Yeah. And I'm also, I think you're a debutant as well, aren't you, Danny? From TalkSport. Yeah, Talk yeah. Danny, yeah. The one and only Danny Kelly. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, the, the lockdown means I'm forced now to be looking behind Stuart at his books to see what he's, what he's <laughs> yeah. arranged on there. Well, I've, uh, gone for, I've gone for a simple uh, uh, original Clash poster that I tore off the wall um, at a gig in 1977. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, if you, if you haven't seen it, it's worth looking at the Clive Tilsley video on how pretentious you can be with books behind you. If you've seen it on Twitter, you should look at it. The Clive Tilsley, the sports commentator. Very well, funny. I, I personally wouldn't want people to see my bookshelves because they think how juvenile they are. Lots of uh, mad annuals and things like that. So um, I, I decided to keep well away from the, from the bookshelves. Well, that sounds very well. As you can see, I put a flat graphic behind me because no one wants to see what's behind me in my office, I can tell you. Uh So I'm not taking any chances. Now, it's tradition, by the way, guys, for um, before we get on, I'll tell you what, on our agenda today, we'll we'll, we'll go over any any recent news, which, of course, there isn't much. But we'll talk about the latest state of play in terms of any possible resumption of football. But before we do that, and then we're going to go on to the main event, which is where the three of us will... Uh, also, uh, uh, armed with um, memories from listeners who've tweeted them in, we're going to talk in depth about the 91 semi-final, which I watched all the way through Fantastic. on Sunday. Yeah. Wow. And we're going to assess it. We're going to talk about it. And, we're gonna, and we're, then we're going to assess where it stands in the pantheon of great Tottenham moments and, and games. But before we do any of that, it is a tradition on the Spurs show to ask debutants what their first ever game, Tottenham Hotspur game was. So, Stuart, when was your first Tottenham Hotspur game? So, I know you won't believe it when you see how youthful I look, but actually, the very first game was 1969. I was taken by my dad to see Spurs at Wild Lane beat Crystal Palace 2-0. Jimmy Greaves was playing, though he didn't score. And my only memory of it, actually, to be honest, was just being up in the stands, aged eight years old, just the atmosphere and looking down at the pitch so, yeah, so I actually technically saw Jimmy Greaves play for Spurs, but I was kind of so young, I can't, I can't tell you much about it other than the atmosphere. Danny, what was your first game? 
I, I can't recall the actual first game because I was lucky enough um, as, a, as a young man in London um, that um, not my dad, and that would be another story, would take up a whole other podcast. Um, <laughs> but the one time we went to see Spurs together, um, God bless his soul, uh, I don't think he ever really recovered from it. Um, but my uncles um, who came across to London in the 60s in waves um, used to take me this from the days um, a couple of years before, Stuart, I think I, I was about 10, I think. So I'm, I'm thinking about 67, 68, I started going to football with my uncles. And, of course, these were the days you could rock up to Arsenal one week. And don't forget, and this is very pertinent to what we're going to talk about later, I was um, born and brought up in the sight and sound of the Highbury Stadium. Uh, long story, we'll go on to it. And um, so we'd rock up to Arsenal one week, uh, Spurs another. My first really big memory of football was being at a game at Fulham. Um, where Fulham were playing the then all-powerful Liverpool team. Um, in the, I would say it feels about 67 to me. Um, and I can remember thinking the crowd must have been 70,000 in Craven Cottage. Um, but even then, um, partially because of Jimmy Grease, who I became obsessed with, um, I pretty much knew, and you know, I had no prescience, but, uh, but don't we go, I ended up working in the rock and roll industry. I knew that Arsenal were the foreign office in red shirts, and that Spurs were strictly rock and roll. And I, I to this day, uh, it's only the whiteness of that shirt that, that separates them from everybody else. And uh, it's one of the reasons why, and Leeds fans might like this, I don't want Leeds to get promoted. I don't want any other another white, white shirt. shirts in the Premier League. No, yeah. stay down there in the Championship where you belong. <laughs> so I don't remember my first Spurs games, but like, um, like Stuart, I remember being at White Hart Lane um, down the front where they had those hooped, uh, yeah. Metal arrangements around the edge of the old the old ground, um, and seeing Jimmy Greaves. I remember in 68, 69, he must have had a pair of lucky boots because they were. I can remember once seeing them very close up, and there was sort of gaffer tape holding them together. Um, but that, that, that's my earliest memories of going to Spurs. Is, is no memory really. Wow. Well, who'd have thought? From the, those early days that we'd all be sitting here now talking to each other on a strange, on a, what we're calling a computer screen. We wouldn't even know what it was, let yes. alone having a worldwide pandemic killer virus, which is keeping us all indoors. It's like science fiction, isn't it? Bizarre. What Bizarre. do we know? What, what do we know about any potential resumption of football? It doesn't seem to get anywhere, does it? I mean, every, every week they say there's going to be a crunch meeting. This is going to be the meeting. This is going to be the decision. Today, everyone's uh, talking, saying different. The government is saying it will be a morale booster. The, the, the club seem desperate. I beg your pardon? Danny, Danny Rose. Isn't. Well, I was going to say Danny Rose and, and a couple of other players, Sterling and uh, Todd Cantwell, have come out and said, look, you can't be talking about playing football unless it's 100% safe. It is, and, you know, I must admit, I sympathise with that just to, to a very large extent. And what do you think, Danny? Do you think this is going to happen anytime soon? Well, look, I mean, obviously, given what I do for a living, I, I, I literally talk about this for three hours most days of the week. Um, I'm very lucky in that I do a lot of my work these days with the former Crystal Palace owner and chairman, Simon Jordan. Um, and Simon, for all that, he's a, a people find him a bit of a marmite geezer. He, what he definitely has is a knowledge of how football works. And look, whichever way you fall in this argument, bring it back early, bring it back later, morale boost, you're going to end up, people, it's almost the fault line, it's almost Brexit again. Um, people who I consider sensible, um, it, it's, it's nuts to be bringing it back so early. Uh, the problem is, of course, the giant television contracts. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they, they, they just don't want to lose the hundreds of millions of pounds that the broadcasters are entitled to ask if they don't get the product. Now, the problem with that is um, I don't believe that Sky or um, BT would ever pull the trigger because both of them, in their different ways, absolutely depend on football for their business model. The problem is the overseas part of the deal, 40% of the money, where these are companies specially put together to uh, have just football on their platforms, um, and they have no uh, loyalty towards the Premier League at all. Um, I think it's far too early to be dragging people back to work in general, but I'm not a scientist, I'm not a pandemicist. Um, I just notice that it's the working-class jobs that are being told to go back to work, yeah. while um, those of us of more middle-class employ uh, are still allowed to sit in front of our bookcases doing stuff like this. Yeah. Um, yeah, so my, my view on this is this, that whatever decision they take, we always have to, we have to accept it will be unfair. 
it'll be unfair to some people. There is no fair decision that will make everyone happy. So therefore, the, the choice depends on what is the least worst option that they can make. And as far as the money's concerned, I mean, I, I take the point about BT and Sky. Everyone says it's, oh, it's all about the money. Well, actually, yeah, of course it's about the money. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's the basis oh. on which the business is built. And on top of that, I was reading recently, I'm sure we all know this, that, that, that Premier League clubs owe about 150 million quid sterling transfer fees that they, you know, from transfers that have taken place. So they're sitting there thinking, we owe a ton of money. At the moment, our, the, the model, the business we planned isn't happening. So it's legitimate, in my view, for, the, for, the, for them to say, we just have to finish this season somehow at some point. We have to make sure we fulfill the contractual obligations. There will be some people who will moan and complain, like Spurs, for example, will benefit because our best players will be fit again, whereas they wouldn't have been. Others will, you know, will have the opposite, where they, they you know, we, we now stand a chance, if they do complete the season, of, of actually, you know, scraping our way further up the table. But yeah. whatever they do is going to be unfair. So I think we have to accept everything is going to be a compromise. Some people are going to moan. There may even be legal action, whatever they do. Um, I think they have to finish the season at some point and then take the consequences next season. No, 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 not a word of disagreement with that, except that the, the critical phrase, at some point. Mm. Um, the problem is ever since uh, Matt Hancock um, allowed himself to be lured into answering a question where he said that oh, it would be a great morale boost for the population if football would come back, football has been forcing itself, along with pressure from UEFA, who've got their Champions League and UEFA uh, the Europa League uh, schedules to, uh, to try and uh, organise. There's been pr twin prong pressure from those two, the British government and uh, UEFA, to try and come up with some kind of timetable. But we are, uh, sorry, I, I'm, I'm, I'm broadcasting from the Republic of Ireland, who locked down earlier um, than Britain, who have done better than Britain with dealing with the pandemic, and we are still now in more stringent lockdown then you've just been released into the, the big thing of going to see your mum, apparently, uh, from the door of a car in a park. Uh, it's, it just seems far too early to me. Um, and it, it's been driven by, as I say, a UEFA's timetable. Um, and we'll see what happens in Germany over the next uh, couple of weeks. I pray to God, and I genuinely do, that it's a great success and everybody comes out of it well. I myself have paid my 19 euros to have my cutout at Gladbach Stadium. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to see football yeah. this, not this weekend, just away. Following weekend. Can I make a Spurs point about this? A really yeah. brief Spurs point, no, uh, because we can go around on that. But it seems to me that there's a, this. This could be a critical thing for Spurs for this reason. In my view, Harry Kane was going to leave at the end of this season. I would if I were him. It was that halfway through his career, he's won nothing. He's given his first half of his career to Spurs. You know, if you could do a big money move in your Harry Kane. Uh, to triple your wages, all that stuff, become a global, global superstar, even much more than you are now. It would be crazy, in my view, for him not to have done that. The whole economics of football globally has been turned on its head. The, you know, he's no longer guaranteed to triple his salary, I suspect, to go anywhere. And I wonder whether this might just be something that keeps Harry at Spurs simply because the money isn't out there as it would have been, you know, six months ago. It could be, though, uh, Stuart, that the opposite is, and it's a very bad thing for Spurs because um, you're right um, in everything you say, but uh, it's much more likely now that if um, Harry Kane was to agitate for a move, he's never going to triple his salary. That would make him uh, more highly paid than anybody except the players in China, um, and, that, and that seems unlikely. But even so, he could make a significant more money. I agree with that. Um, the problem is uh, a player who was quite, in my mind, valued at £200 million pounds um, three, uh, eight weeks ago, there's no, there's no £200 million pound footballer left in the world. Um, exactly. And it's much more likely that Spurs will, ha will lose Harry Kane and also lose him for a much less fee than they did. Um, so it's one of a number of things, I think. I mean, we're not going to do doom and doom here because we're going to talk about the semi-final in a minute. This yeah. thing really hit Spurs very hard. You know, the, uh, the lack of... If you're if you're one of the if you're now making more money through the through the stadium, I'm not saying through the gate, that's still Arsenal, but more money through the stadium for home games um, than any other club in the world, then obviously empty grounds, terrible thing. The upcoming fight with Anthony Joshua, 
doubt it will, doubt it will happen in front of a crowd. Um, the American football is being cancelled. Daniel Levy is standing uh, watching um, the the equivalent of bills flying through the door. Um, I'm not. I can't. It's hard. I don't, I don't feel very sympathetic. I mean, because all these big football clubs, um, let's be honest, are run ridiculously. I don't know. What, I, I don't even know what you do for a living, Stuart. But I bet you don't uh, work for a company or own a company that pays its uh, employees 85% of the turnover. Um, but football continued to do it, knowing that someday something would come down the pike. Unfortunately, that day has come. And it's going to take a really concerted effort from everybody, except the players who said already said they're not going to help, um, <laughs> to save the football pyramid in this country. <laughs> yeah. Well, time will tell. We'll have yeah. to see, won't we? Let's yeah. talk about happier times. Uh, let's go. Let's transport ourselves back to those what seemed like such simple days. We feel almost medieval by comparison to what we're talking <laughs> yeah. about. 1991, when in actual fact, it's funny, oh. you talk about almost in the existential, existential terms about Tottenham Hotspur and the way things are. We had an existential crisis in 1991 as we approached this incredible game, this game which seemed so enormous to be playing Arsenal in the first ever Wembley semi-final, purely being played there because there was no other venue remotely big enough to house such a game. Uh, we were going out of business. We looked like we were actually going bust. We were Terry Benables was running around trying to get someone to rescue the club. Arsenal were way ahead of us. They'd only lost two games all season. What were your do you have what what are your memories leading up to that game? How you felt and how you were anticipating it, and what were you doing at the time, Stuart? Well, do you mind if I put a bit of context on this from my personal life? Because this exactly game, what we want, right? Well, this game was huge for me. I mean, it was huge for everyone, but uh, uh, but it was massive, and I'll tell you why. Two years earlier, let me go back two years earlier, nineteen eighty nine. I was a TV reporter at the time. My early career was a TV and radio reporter. So at the time, I'd been a BBC reporter and an ITN reporter. But at this point, I was working for London Weekend Television. Friday night, 1989, and the guy said to me, we want you to go down to Highbury. Arsenal are going away to Liverpool. It's between them and Liverpool to win the, the first division. They've got to win 2-0. And you're going to do a late-night report after news at 10 on the doom and gloom around Highbury when they clearly fail to yeah. to do this because they're clearly yeah. not going to do that. Yeah, I said, I'd love to do that. There's nothing I'd rather do. So I go down there and we all know what happens. Last minute of the game, they score the second goal. The whole of Highbury goes crazy. I go live on television with a load of gooners around me rubbing my hair Hell, you know, just hell. I'm in misery, but I'm having, but I'm a London TV reporter, so I have to say what a fantastic yeah. news it is that London clubs just went, anyway. So, oh God, that's miserable. Then they say to me, well, good news, you're on that story for the weekend. I say, no, 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 I don't want to. They say, well, you're the only one in the newsroom who knows about football, so you need to do this story. I won't tell you about my miserable Saturday box popping Arsenal fans about how happy they were, but Sunday, come Sunday, in front of Islington Town Hall, there are 200,000 Arsenal fans waiting for the open top bus to arrive for two hours early. And in front of them, between them and the town hall, is an outside broadcast truck with an idiot standing on top of it with a cameraman. That's me. I'm the reporter <laughs> going live for two hours in the build-up. So, of course, these people have got nothing to do except this idiot in front of them. So they start cheering at me, you know, shouting. Then they start trying to lob footballs, knock me. It's if they knock me off. Then they... Then they then they start then I mean then I'm kind of trying to smile and get away. Then they start they throw Arsenal scarves at me, Arsenal hats at me. Where are the colours? Where are the colours? They're going absolutely crazy. I'm standing there thinking I do not want to wear Arsenal colours. You mustn't. This is terrible. Throw yourself off, Stuart. Oh, no. <laughs> well, you're right. I mean, the, I was suicidal, but I did to, to my shame, to my ultimate shame. I had to wear these Arsenal scarves. Oh, I'm going man. live on television. Good news, no mobile phones then. I then find myself on the balcony with the Arsenal team as they lift up the first division, filming them, interviewing all the players, interviewing George Graham. I go, I go home thinking that's been the worst day of my entire life to an answer phone full of deserved vitriol and abuse. So that to, so I, for me, to beat Arsenal after knowing that they were so good and we were so bad built up to that semi-final, I thought, yeah, I just prayed, you know, that we, we, we would do it. So that for me was, 
was the kind of preamble to the build-up to that incredible match. The stakes wow. were high for you. The state, I just thought, I can't, I was ready for misery, I was ready for depression, because you have to be as a Spurs yeah, fan, but, but at the same time, I was just, I, I'd had such a miserable... Oh, yeah, so it sounds like, it, I mean, you know, when you actually, that sounds like, so surreal, it sounds like, an, an, literally like a nightmare, the sort of nightmare you could have, I mean, especially when you get, you're, you're precariously on top of a van, and you have an Arsenal scarf thrown at you, and then you end up wearing them on the telly. Oh, my God. Danny, what were you doing in the build-up to this game? Well, um, I'm afraid Islington Town Hall comes into this as well. First of all, let me say um, that I've always hated the derby. I hate the North London derby because, as I say, I was brought up in Islington. Um, All my friends support Arsenal. Uh, All my family support Arsenal. And the woman I'm currently in lockdown here with, she's a season ticket holder at Arsenal. (laughs) So they have dominated my life. Um, and my worst memory of this, uh, I don't think I can match Stuart, actually, is when they won the double in 1971, our house was absolutely equidistant um, between the stadium at Highbury and the town hall. You could hear both on a, on a loud day. Um, and I remember it was a really hot May day. They'd done the double, first team since Spurs to do that double. And my family cut out cardboard effigies of the league trophy and the FA Cup and got themselves doled up in their red and white gear and went off to the town hall to celebrate, leaving the 14-year-old me in the garden, desultorily booting a football about. The noise, I could, I mean, to this day, I still, the, the sun beat down on me, and I'm, I'm not good in the sun, I'm too far too fair for it, but I could hear the roar of quarter of a million people, less than 800 yards away, probably 600 yards away, down at the town hall. Um, and I have to say, uh, any any deficiencies I have of the mind um, and any money I eventually end up spending on therapy can all be traced straight back that day. Um, so that's one. Secondly, of course, um, by, by the time we got to the semi-final in 1991, um, I had stopped going to Spurs. Now, there, um, I, about 1988-89, I realised that there was something wrong with me and that, I think what happened, I met, I met a... a you were a Spurs fan. Yeah, well, that's part of it. I met a woman, um, and my life was in a very happy place. I went on to eventually marry her, and she divorced me seven months later. Other story, other podcast, <laughs> other therapy. Um, and um, I, 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 she was said, what's the matter with you one weekend? And I said, oh. And, and I realised my mood at the weekends was entirely based upon whether Spurs had won or lost. I thought, this is horrible, Danny. You really are very invested in this. I'm a grown man, don't forget. I'm not a teenager. And for about two and a half years, I stopped going. I said, I need to cure myself of this. Of course, I still followed the results and poured over the ins and outs of the team selections and all the rest of it. But I stopped going to try and cure myself. And I actually did stop caring quite as much as I did then and do again now. Um, and I remember that was right at that time. Uh, and so... That is semi-final and the final may be the only really big Spurs matches that I've missed. The Champions League final, notwithstanding last year, because I was working um, in in all of my adult life. Um, So I watched it on television uh, in our little house in Walthamstow um, in a state of... I, I renewed my agitation, but I, I, I would have preferred to be there because somehow being in a stadium, you think you've got some influence. Yeah. You think your voice, you think yeah. your emotional electricity will help the team, but you yeah. can't do that through, through a TV screen. If you want an e-bike that doesn't look like it's made for the shopping precinct... Something that's less Mr. Bean and more Steve McQueen. Check out the range of bikes from London-based Cooler King. From dope 250-watt city bikes to Harley Bobber-inspired 750-watt beasts that can tear your face off while leaving your smile intact. Cooler Kings are made in limited numbers, yet highly affordable. Check them out now on the web at cooler.bike or find them on Instagram with hashtag CoolerKingBike. Cooler.bike. E-bikes that are cool AF. 
Well, I in, in the build-up, I was working in a small film company called Tony K Films. Tony K was a legend in the ad business. He was the greatest commercials director there ever was. And he was a lunatic, a renowned eccentric. He never paid me any salary. He just paid me, you know, every now and then, quite unexpectedly. But one thing I had was he'd given me, because he'd become very successful, he'd got two seats in the Centenary Club at White Hart Lane, and he'd given me his season ticket, one seat, prime, halfway line, West Stand Upper. And I'd been using it for about 18 months, just as a perk of the job, the only perk of the job as it was. And then on in the build-up, and all the uh, cup games and stuff, I was using the vouchers to get the, you know, to get the tickets. And about two weeks before the semi-final, or a week before the semi-final, he said, oh, sorry, I'm going to need that voucher because I want my uncle to go... To the ga- I thought, what? Uh, oh, no. This is the biggest. This is the no. big one. And then you're just saying, oh no, I can't. I couldn't believe it. So I was quite skinned, you know, I was quite young and quite skinned. And I, I remember spending, I got managed to get asking around for days. And I got a ticket for 50 quid. I didn't know where it was going to be. I went with my mates. I was on my own. And the ticket I got on my own was about 10 yards to the left of the Tottenham bench down wow. low. So. Of course, that was an amazing place to experience it all because that's where Gaza ran to after he scored the goal and all of that. But we'll come on to the game. But that yeah. was me. I just only just managed to get there. But I would say now, it's for me the greatest day out of the lot. I mean, but if you remember the get this, just the other thing I remember about it, I went to the game with two mates that I always, one of my mates I went to all the games with had a season ticket. And then he said to me, again, another curveball on the way uh, into the game, he said, oh, my brother's going, my older brother's going to come, Via. My mate, Andy Walker, he said, my older brother, Via's going to come. Now, Via, who was about 10 years older than Andy, had been part of the notorious Tottenham firm of the early 70s. Wow. You know, the very, when it was yes. really serious. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Very saw, serious. And he'd been all rocks. over the country and all over Europe and everything, and he'd hardly oh been dispersed since the sort of mid seven, mid to late 70s. But because it was this big game, he was going to come, he'd got a ticket. And then two days before the game, Andy phones me up and says, Via says, we've got to go with a, f- we can't go to this game, we've got to go with a firm. I said, what are you talking about? We go to every game in the car, park the car and go in, you and me. No, Via is very insistent. We have to go with a firm. I didn't even, I mean, I didn't even know. So cut to, on the, he said, on the morning of the game, we have to go early at like, it was an early kickoff, of course, it was a midday kickoff. We've got to meet the firm, like somewhere like Harrow. I, I drive to Harrow with these two guys, these two brothers, and sure enough, there's like two, three hundred guys, all of whom look like they might be psychopaths. <laughs> Some of them are drinking beer, by the way. It's like seven, eight o'clock in the morning. And we all get on the tube together. And on the tube, there's loads of chatter going on. Oh, where are, the, where are the scum? Where are the coppers? Where's the filth and all this? And at some point, just one stop short of the main Wembley. What's, what's Wembley, the station there, Wembley? Is it Wembley, Wembley Park? Park? Yeah, Wembley Park. So as we're coming to the state stop before, word goes around. God knows why, because there's no mobile phones or anything going around, I don't think. Somebody, they say, oh, the old Bill are onto us. They're waiting for us at Wembley Park. We've got to get off a stop early and walk the rest of the way. <laughs> thinking, what the hell? I'm getting a real insight here into how a firm works. So suddenly we all get off a stop early. Who, who knows the way? No one's got a Google map, that's for sure. But somehow they know. We start walking and there's singing going on. A few people are already drunk and everything. We're, we're going around all these residential suburban streets. We turn around one corner, right? And there, coming towards us up this back street, is the Arsenal team bus. Wow. It's a quiet back street. It must be a shortcut or they're avoiding traffic. I don't know what. Well, this mob, which is what it was, are like, oh, as soon as they found out, well, they start screaming at it and they're throwing things at it, cans, anything they can get hold of. And they're throwing bricks and everything. And I remember so distinctly that George Graham's right at the front of the coach, you know, that seat behind the driver, you can see him. And I remember he looked straight ahead and his expression never changed. And a couple of these bricks smashed windows. There were windows smashed on the coach and it crawled as best it could through and it got away. And no police arrived in time to stop it. It was an extremely exhilarating experience. I don't think it was ever reported. They certainly never used it as any kind. They never complained about it. Wow. And and I, you know, needless to say, you wonder to this day, they were terrible in the first half, Arsenal. You do wonder whether they were shaken up by it. It was never in the papers. And I think what they decided was, we're not going to give them the... 
you know, because they, by that time with hooligans, they never put hooligans on the news. They never had any footage of it because they'd worked out that the hooligans all had scrapbooks and bloody video showreels and stuff. So it was never talked about, but it was it was a it's an incredibly vivid memory of mine on the way to the game. So here's a question for you. As a respectable person, none of us can can endorse or say what a good thing about. But if, if that actually did ruin Arsenal's first half, yeah. Yeah. okay, how would you feel about that now, all these years later? If, if that was the reason we won that fantastic game? Well, I watched that game again, as I say, on Sunday, all the way through. And they, yeah. were, they were a team that were almost impossible to beat that season on any other day. They'd lost yes. twice, both times to Chelsea, once in the league, once in the cup. That they they were not a team you could easily turn over, and we turned them over in that first half. We should have. We're going off the pitch, and the commentator is saying Barry Davis is saying they should Spurs should be way ahead here. And you think why? Why were they that day? Just in the first half, by the way. Second half they got they pulled themselves together, but first half they were they were not at the races. So maybe. I mean, I'm, I'm, Theo, I'm, I'm going to check. I mean, I'm, I've got no reason to, not to believe the uh, absolute very similitude of every syllable you've yeah. just spoken. Yeah. Um, but I work with no, a number of that Arsenal squad. I will check find it. out. Arsenal. I will get hold of, particularly Groves. He's I was the just most gonna Arsenal. Say, I was I'll get hold of Perry. And yeah. I'll say, you tell me about this because it's yeah. very, that's, yeah. that's very, I mean, obviously, it's, it's beyond condoning, obviously. Yes. And it's interesting too, isn't it? Because it, you, what, what is hard to tell, unless you think about it, of course, is that that kind of football violence um, is largely taken out of the game, thank God, uh, by the Premier League. And in some ways, the 1991 FA Cup, um, that semi final and the final against Nottingham Forest is the last of, a, of, of that era, isn't it? Because yeah. yeah. Premier League comes in, Spurs change the shape of the shorts, so the players yeah. even look different. Yeah. Within two months, yeah. the players even look different. It's an absolute watershed. You've had you've had Italian 90. Gaza's tears have watered the imagination of television executives who thought, hang on, women are watching this, and it's a drama. We can turn this into a soap opera, which is what they've done. Um, and so I, one of the reasons I really particularly enjoy Spurs winning the 1991 uh, FA Cup is because it is the very last of a, that kind of inner, innocent era. Although the innocence itself on the pitch, um, you know, virtually all the players were not just British, but English. Yeah, Eric only Torsvet two non-British yeah. players on the whole pitch, one for each yeah. team, Torsvet and Limpar. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. uh, it's a completely different world. Although, as I say, that innocence was... Uh, a, f- a front of house screen for what was actually the dominant feature in my mind of, of top level English football throughout the 80s, which was the actual violence, which anyone who went to the grounds will tell you just how amazingly bad it got at times yeah. to the point where people stopped going. And I can remember someone from the Chelsea persuasion, one of these days when I just like to go to football, in the mid 80s going to Stamford Bridge and watching a League Cup tie with 8,000 souls at it. Top-level football clubs yeah. were attracting crowds of less than 10,000 um, mm. because of what had gone on the grounds, you know. Yeah. You know, that's a really interesting point you've made there about this end of an era, beginning of a new era piece. It really was that transition, wasn't it? And actually, yeah. if you think about it, this was also the first semi-final to be played at Wembley. And it's a bit like when rock music went from being, you know, in a venue to suddenly being stadium rock. Mm-hmm. It's the same kind of idea. It's suddenly, be- and, and you're absolutely right, Danny, and I hadn't thought of it in quite that way until you just said it, but it's switched off. The 1990 World Cup, the whole Gaza tears, Gaza and Lineker, who both of whom were on the pitch for Spurs that day. Yeah. So, World so the stars of the soap opera were yeah. right there before our eyes, you know. Oh, yeah. And, and, um, and it all kind of came together on that day, didn't it? On that magical day, it all came together. And by the way, just as an anecdote of to add to my own particular kind of connection with this, when at the when the England team came back from the 1990 World Cup, they did an open top bus tour through Luton. Remember, they got knocked out in the semi final. Open yeah. top bus tour through Luton. Gaza with the breasts on his neck. Yeah. Yeah. There were only two reporters on that bus. Me. And a guy from the BBC, and I was on that bus all the way through. And you I, just if I, your Arsenal scarf. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> I, 
but I've got a photo of me with no, that's a horrible thing. I'm never gonna do that now. But there's a there's a photo of me with Gaza on that bus, with it, you know, on that bus. And I have to say, I remember saying, Do you know what? This has been being a reporter, this has made the whole thing worthwhile, you know, just to be on that bus. So um the uh, the the emotion that there was and um, little did we know that the Premier League was about to start and the whole world was about to change from black and white to colour. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And then the game kicks off. We've got no expectations of that game. But, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm I'm obviously you, you're not completely uh, devoid of hope because anyway, everyone's got a puncher's chance. But you're thinking this could be a horrible day because like you, Danny, I've always found the derby a absolutely horrific ordeal until and unless it's over and you haven't lost. I mean, the actual... <laughs> Sure, and I, I, the, the, if you look at the stats, the number of draws, even when Arsenal in the last 20 years of 10, 25 years yeah, have tended yeah. to dominate the the number of draws tells yeah, yeah. me, I mean, I've got no, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I cannot believe the Metropolitan Police are not involved in these games <laughs> at, some, at some level. I mean, for instance, you know, let's be honest, the game where Arsenal won the title uh, at the lane most recently, where it ends up a 2-2 draw because Jens Lehmann throws yeah. uh, uh, Robbie Keane bodily into the net to give away a penalty in the last minute I, I'm pretty sure the authority said we need to get this game level before we can get these players yeah, off the yeah, pitch because yeah. this is not going to work in this stadium yeah, um, yeah. you know they, they are horrible but I must admit my own th thinking about it at the time was uh, you know the gap between the very best teams and the rest in the Premier League which is now vast because of the unfolding of the, of the riches of the Premier League it was different then and Spurs had what they always had seen to me they had, unless they had a great team, like the early 70s team, um, and to some extent the, the, the team of the 81-82, of the, the well, Spurs had what they always had, a bang average team with three or four really fantastic footballers. Mm. Now, it just happened that the footballers at that time that were really fantastic were down the spine of the team. Torsford was a good goalkeeper, had a great day. Gary Mabbott knew how to defend. Gaza was a genius, and Lineker could score goals. They yeah. happened to have... You say a puncher's chance, Theo. I think they had more than a puncher's chance. They had the chance of a team that, if everybody did their best of the day and the water carriers all played well, people like Paul Allen, Pat Van Den Howe had a great game on the day. Um, yeah. If the water carriers played well, Spurs had enough firepower to sink any team. Now, of course, you've still got to rely on other things happening. And the central theme, often we think about Gaza's free kick now, and of course, it, it changes the whole complexion of the game. Yeah. But and I've got to be careful, I'll say this, so I don't sound too joyful. <laughs> it is traditional to blame David Seaman for the first goal going in and the third. Yeah. I'd like to add a second as well. <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure that, that in that old scrambling about in the six-yard area, that yeah. he, should, he could... He, he should have smothered have done it. something about that. So I'd like to blame David, who, again, someone I work with, I'd like to blame for all three goals. By the way, you can't talk to David Seaman about this match. Really? Even really? now, there's no there's wow. no talking about it. No. That's amazing. Well, he left the field in tears, didn't he? he yeah, absolutely. If you start talking about this game, he goes two years forward to the semi final in '93. Right. right. And well, I then have to back off. I have to back off. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, well, the, the first the, you, you, the build. We got the build up, but when the match started, I I remember the feeling of that first half. Of, of just complete shock and excitement and yeah. thrill that we were on top, given yeah. everything you've said about the build-up, that the feeling, the emotion of that of that first half for me was among the most intense, I think, of any match I've ever been to for Spurs. Yeah. Just because it was, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. For all the yeah. reasons Danny's just given about how, and you gave about how, how good Arsenal were, I could not believe what I was seeing. I was just... Oh, it's fantastic. Well, it's beyond your wildest dreams, wasn't it? The first 10 minutes yeah. were way beyond your wildest dreams. Not only winning 2-0, but that Gascoigne free kick, one of the greatest goals ever seen at Wembley. Uh, Lineker scoring, us basically outplaying them for the whole <coughs> half, which is why, of course, when they scored, with probably their only real chance of the of the half, uh, right yeah. before half-time, you just thought, oh, this is here we go. This is It's written. This is so in the, in the script. Absolutely. We've outplayed them and we're going to lose and we've given away a stupid... And it was a bit of a stupid goal. It was a good ball in the area. It was a decent header, but he has a pretty free header, really. And, and at that Eric, point, Eric, our Torsford, Eric Torsford makes tremendously hard work of getting across and down. I know it was a great header by Alan Smith, 
But Eric does, he comes down in, the, the cliche is the installments, doesn't yeah. he? comes yeah. down like a giant redwood. He, I, I think a modern goalkeeper, all that springing about they do, would be expected to stop that. But And, of course, uh, which one of us, which one of the three of us, which one of the 60,000 Spurs fans in the stadium and the millions of us watching on television didn't think, OK, here we go. Yeah. But I think, I think about the first half, I think, I think it should be said that Terry Venables, um, in many ways, has become a kind of, uh, you know, a, a, not a figure of fun, but a cockney geezer and all the rest of it and all that. Terry Venables was a really good football manager. Yeah. Really yeah. good. I and anyone who saw the way he set up an England team yeah. um, to take advantage of the talent of all 11 players in it um, will know that. The Crystal Palace team he managed, and he be. I was amazed that Vinny Samway started that game. I thought Naeem would start instead mm. of Vinny Samway. I, was, I wasn't so surprised Spurs started with just one up front. Um, you had to you had to take on that last team in midfield. But what was interesting about it and what the first 20 minutes, the number of passes that went round the corner, that when teams are up and running and playing well, the ball goes round the corner. The first touch takes it to a runner going past you. Spurs did that from minute one. They had obviously been convinced by their manager that, of course, this was a great chance, but having a great opportunity in life, we all know, um, is not the same thing as taking it. Otherwise, clearly, we wouldn't be sitting here on this podcast if we'd taken our opportunities in life. <laughs> and, and, and it's one thing convincing people you've got an opportunity. It's another thing convincing them they can take it and letting them be free enough in their minds to take it. Now, yeah. Obviously, Paul Gastelon has to take some credit for that as well, because the free kick, if ever you wanted the doors of possibility, the doors of perception to be booted open, then that did it. Of course it did. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, you watch the first 20 minutes. Watch the number of times Spurs flicked the ball on first time. I mean, goodness, I, I didn't see Arthur Rose push and run team, but they were starting to swirl around my mind as I watched it again yesterday, you know? Yeah. In fact, I think Barry Davis referred to it, funnily enough, in the yeah. commentary. Oh, did he? Yeah, because of what, for exactly the reasons you're saying, he, he referred to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that struck me because when I watched it on Sunday, I'd never watched it all the way through on television because obviously I was in the in the ground on the go. He's brilliant. Barry Davis comes out of it great as well. And of course, he's revealed himself to be a Tottenham fan since his uh, retirement. So it was a great day for him. But <laughs> oh, half- poet of the world, of the game, actually. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But at halftime, I remember in the final, we're not going to talk about it, but I do remember in the final being surrounded by... Tottenham fans and everyone's saying we were losing at halftime and everyone's saying I feel more optimistic now one down against Forest than I did two one up against Arsenal because we just conceded and because they were Arsenal and because they were steamrollering teams all season and of course the second half was a very different game and I felt like that they'd got their they'd suddenly got their I mean one thing that did strike me, and obviously I'm going to, I'm going to sound biased, but one thing that did, did strike me about that, about that Arsenal team, an incredibly ugly team. I mean, very, very dirty, very, very direct, nasty. Yeah, and we, fact, have, we, we, we're, we're the very handsome Vinny Samways on our side to really shine through. And, you yeah, know. I, think, I, think, I, think, I think you're talking about the way they played rather yeah. than, rather oh, than oh, okay. appearance. Because yeah. otherwise, yeah. this greenhouse is not going to survive those <laughs> I'm definitely Speak talking yourself. about but you know, we all remember that George Graham's all team. Right, you're off the hook then. <laughs> they had their, they had that reputation. But actually, seeing it 90 minutes, you really realised that they were, they were so horribly pragmatic and dirty. I mean, Lee Dixon was a very, very, very. Uh, he seems like such a nice man now, doesn't he? He's all articulate and sort of civilised and does things for good causes and everything. When you watch him, I suddenly remembered as I was watching him on Sunday that he was a horrible player. He really was. was. Adam was very dirty, bald, you know. I mean, they were they were um, hard team to lie. And that, that was their reputation. And the only thing you had to say was you had to respect them because he found a way of winning. That was the way he found a winning. And it was in sharp contrast to his playing persona, of course, Stroller. Yeah. But I mean, at halftime, that's one of the reasons why I just thought this is all going wrong here. Yeah. Well, if you don't, no, sorry, the thing I think uh, it coming back to that first half, and then actually less so in the second because we were overrunning the second. But come back to the, the point you made earlier today about the the water carriers. You know, we we had these this great these great players. I mean. Torstep, by the way, that, that, the goal we let in, I think he was faster going down when he came for the veterans match in the new, in the new stadium. You know what I mean? I think he was... I don't, was think, so, I don't think a modern goalkeeper would accept that as, as, as an right. acceptable piece of goalkeeping. No. It was, he did it. He did it. And we didn't need slow motion. But, but the, the, water, the so-called water carriers 
I thought also were the unsung stars. And I think actually Paul Stewart deserves a real mention both yeah. for the semi and particularly for the final. But it's yeah. a different question when Gazza got injured. Paul yeah. Stewart for me was man of the match. Yeah. So Paul Stewart, I think, is one of those. This was his. These were his best moments in a Spurs shirt. Yeah, and, and you know Paul Stewart um, was good enough to play for Liverpool. So that, that yeah. tells you everything you need to know about Paul. And he. He, in a world which was still largely dominated by 4-4-2, and which, of course, Benables were starting to unravel in English football, um, Paul Stewart uh, was a kind of a mystery because he was neither an out-and-out striker nor an out-and-out midfield player. But they were right to say, Stuart, that because he could do both things, mm. um, when the game got bitty, he knitted it together much more further forward than team players who normally knit games together. And you're right, he had two, two lovely games uh, for Spurs there. And allowed yeah. Lineker, um, you know, Gary Lineker also deserves credit, not just because he's a great finisher. Um, people talk about Gary being a goal hanger and all the rest of it. You look at the running he put into that system where he played on his own. Um, and again, I don't say this because I, because I know the great man these days. Uh, when he was asked to do that, do that thing on his own, he was absolutely um, tireless. I know he said stakhanovite there, but I'm not sure everyone's going to go with that. Um, <laughs> and of course, part of this was a relief from his time at Barcelona, where he'd been parked on the right wing yeah. and told to stay there. Yeah. Um, at least, at least having the freedom of Wembley was 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 a good thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but, the sec- go on. Well, I was just going to say that the second half, although. You know, we all remember being up, and we are because obviously, as I said, just watched it, and we were kind of up against it. I wouldn't say it was massively one-sided. They just became more like what they were supposed to be. And what my memory of being there and watching it was, although Gaz's free kick was one of the most gobsmacking goals I've ever seen, and the whole it's one of those goals where there was a split second in the stadium where there was almost a, a micro millisecond of silence because no one could quite believe what they'd seen. But the goal that made me go absolutely mental and lose it was, of course, the third goal, because that third goal, that's when you knew that was the great release where you thought, actually, you know what, maybe we are going to do this. I remember running. I was only about 10 rows back, you know, but running it completely uncontrolled and hurling myself at the fence, which I think was still there. It was just amazing, that third goal. And uh, and at that time, of course, if you're in the stadium, you don't realise it's a goalkeeping mistake. And in fact, yeah. it was only... A- it was still a great effort by Lenica. It was a great... It was a good... It was a well-worked thing. There was a decoy run by, I think, Samways. Samways, yeah. yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> And he certainly, I mean, Lineker being the ruthless scorer that he is, he gave himself every chance, but he had to rely on a, a slight bit of a deficiency from the uh, from the goalkeeper, I'm delighted to say. But, I mean, that moment was one of the most joyous moments I can ever remember from a goal in a, in a football stadium, even though it wasn't the best of the three goals. Well, I voted for that on the on your on your oh, yeah. top it's ten. Oh yeah, the greatest goals. Of all no, time. no, no, my my number one. Because I want to talk about this goal because for me, this the goal, the third goal, is the the purest moment of ecstasy yeah. I had as a Spurs fan. The number one on my list, bar none. I can remember. It's one of those moments in my life where I can. I can bring it back in a second. I remember him scoring. I looked up at the scoreboard. Arsenal one, Tottenham three. I remember looking up at the sky and just, it was, you know, like you have a moment in your life where you feel like there's a shaft of sunlight that's coming down and you're and on you and you think, I own this. This was for me, you know, you, it was it was pure, unadulterated bliss that he scored that goal. We were going to win the match against all the odds, with all the background, with all the build-up, with all the context. And that third goal for me, even though Gaza's goal was, of course, amazing, and Lineker's goal, you know, when you look at it again, you quite really say it was a, you know, he got away with one with with Seaman. Nevertheless, as a moment of pure joy for me, it it, it even beats the Champions League, you know, moments more last up. year. Yeah. Even there for me, because of the context, because of yeah. because of you know everything, it was fantastic. Yeah. I loved and, it. And I think it's fair to say that the commentary when you listen to it, and I've watched both the ITV and BBC versions of it. There's a shortened BBC truncated BBC version on YouTube as well. Um, they, they, the talk was all about Arsenal coming at Spurs in ways. Spurs had lost the territory, definitely. But it was, one, it was odd, wasn't it? Because when the ecstasy subsided, you'd normally go into classic Spurs mode of saying, my God, there's still X minutes to yeah. go, we've got to get two. It was never like that, though, after that, was it? I mean, whether whether it was the bricks through the windows of the coach yeah. or the sheer pluck as well as skill the Spurs players on the day... I had once the third goal went in. I mean, believe me, I'm not normally like this. I expect <laughs> a three goal lead for me to yeah. relax. 
Yeah, um, at least. I, I remember distinctly thinking, um, okay, you haven't been all, all this season or last season. How are you going to get tickets for the final? Because yeah. it was clear that, uh, look, if you score twice in the first 10 minutes against the best team in the country, um, you may you may be entitled to think it's your day. If the best goalkeeper in the country is having one, then you must think, well, uh, I, I, look, you'd have to be very, very of a very negative cast of mind to not yeah. think we could do this. And so I remember enjoying the last, even the siege at the end where they hit the, uh, the bar. Campbell hit the bar, didn't they? The I think bar. twice. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed all that because I still think, even if they pull one back, we're still, this is still yeah. great going to the cup final. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, the final whistle. My my memory. I've got this abiding memory of after. I mean, the the bliss once the whistle's gone. Of course, is is again. It's almost the best. I, I think it's the best bliss I've ever experienced. Really, after a football match. And I remember going out because I was on my. I wasn't with any of my own mates. I was meeting them afterwards. I remember that the crowd you was had very a lot dense. More fighting to do, didn't you? I was going to look for that bus, finish it off. But we were we were um, moving out very slowly in a dense crowd, and we were singing. You've lost that double feeling. Whoa, that, and I don't know, I don't know who'd come up with it because it was obviously it never been appropriate before. So someone no. had come up with, it, and it's like you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of men walking slowly towards an exit. I looked across actually, and I remember at the time he was very famous. He's still very well known. The the film producer Stephen Woolley. Do you remember him who did a lot yeah, of uh, big yeah. films at the time and yeah. Mona Lisa and things like that? Scandal. And he was he seemed like he was like me. He was on his own. He was doing exactly what I was doing. He was just like looking around, beaming and kind of joining in, just just soaking, you know, taking it all in. And it's a moment I, I will never forget. It was absolutely uniquely fabulous. Amazing. Well, at that, that, at that time, I, at the, because I was covering Spurs a bit for uh, LWT, I had a press pass for Spurs. So I used to go to all the post-match press conferences. John, do you remember John Fenley, the, uh, yeah, the yeah. press officer? So John got me into all the matches, which was really nice. Anyway, so I was with my friend Mark Hommel, who I went to a lot of Spurs with. And he and I, I said, come on, Mark, we can get to see the post-match press. He said, we can't go to I said, yes, we can. And, of course, the world was a simpler world then. You could just bluff your way in in a way you can't do now. So we bluffed our way into the post-match. I, I waved a card at a guy. I looked as if I belonged, brought Mark with me as my assistant. And we found ourselves in the post-match press conference with Terry Venables and George Graham, you know, in, in turn. And it was just fantastic. It was, it was just... It was just the whole experience was amazing. Yeah. What's interesting to me is hearing the two of you were in the ground going on about the post-match ecstasy. And, of course, that's shared by people like myself watching it on television. But it's it's interesting to me that you can both identify it as the most um, ecstasy you've ever felt because my experience of football has been that, and the reason why I think it has addicted the whole planet, is that that feeling is actually replicable. Um, I always thought Mm. I'd never get a more brilliant feeling than the 1973 League Cup final. I was a teenager yeah. at Wembley for the first time. Um, I don't think I missed it. God, I missed it in 71. Um, and Spurs have won a cup. Um, and yet, I remember being on the terraces at Southampton when they got promoted out of the second division and thinking, I, this is the most extraordinary feeling. Mm. Um, even as the people around me, and not me, Theo, uh, smashed up <laughs> Southampton's Dell ground. Mm. Yeah. Um, the 1984 UEFA Cup second leg at White Hart Lane when Graham Roberts bundles the ball over the line. Then that game, um, Peter Crouch's winner at, at uh, in Manchester City as he could qualify for the Champions League for the first time. And of course, the semi final of the Champions League itself. Uh, you know, exactly a year ago, um, I put on Twitter a picture of me, uh, not a young man anymore, um, my burst into tears. So it's amazing that, of course, you can identify peaks of, of, of the wonder of watching football and how great is our souls that it allows us to forget most of the bad things. Yeah. But the great thing about the game is it keeps bringing them back again and again and again, if yeah. you're lucky and yeah. if you support the right kind of team. Well, interestingly, last week uh, we had on this show, the top, we had a vote as Stuart uh, mentioned, uh, the best, the greatest Tottenham goals of all time. And the top three, which were my top three and many people's, were uh, Ricky Villa in 81, mm-hmm. Lucas Mora in Amsterdam, mm-hmm. and Gaza at Wembley. And it's occurred to me that those were three were probably the most uh, intense 
pleasurable experiences of my footballing life. I was there in 81. I wasn't in Amsterdam, but I watched it on television with people that I was very close to, you know. And uh, But I think the reason why, for me, that 91 game is the biggest is because of the context, which we've talked about. Because it wasn't just against anyone. It was against the team you most want to beat. It was against, against them when they were at their most invincible, well, Certainly up to that point, they're most invincible. They were also, the, the fact that they were also so grim and ugly, you're almost defeating evil in on a, on more than one level, you know? <laughs> well, that, that's, that, that's true every time we played them, isn't it? Let's be yeah, clear about this. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, well, you know, it's interesting about personalities as well, then, because to me, if you'd asked me my two favourite Spurs goals, one would have been Peter Crouch's goal at the Etihad, yeah. or, or City of London, or City of Manchester Stadium, or Eastlands, whatever it was called that day, yeah. um, because it took Spurs to a level they hadn't been at before. And and the game, again, at Southampton, I think that nil-nil draw, there was no goal in it. But the nil-nil draw, you know, we've seen... Um, I, I remember somebody was saying Ipswich Town now. I mean, they're a great team in the early 80s. I, I did a thing on the radio not so long ago about teams that didn't win anything but you know were great. And the Ipswich Town team in the early 80s was yeah. the, dominate half the three-hour phone-in. Wow. And... and uh, they are now in the third level of English football, haven't won for about eight weeks before the pandemic. Yeah, Leeds yeah. United have been in the second division of English football, the second tier of English football for a generation now. Mm. Um, and you could go through all of them. So getting back out of that division as quickly as Spurs did, quite apart from the fact it was a great laugh because um, Spurs were taking it to, in that season in the second division in the mid-70s, taking often more away fans to the games than there were home fans, which yeah. was amazing. And because you could plan your route, finish the football, and then go to the nearest punk rock gig, I remember it with an extraordinary um, uh, happiness. And, and of course, there isn't a goal for that promotion season. There isn't a goal to point to because it's a nil-nil draw, probably yeah. fix, um, yeah. that takes both teams up out of the division. Yeah. So, uh, but I, of course I understand this game. The, the games against Arsenal, uh, look, I'm thinking about Eunice Kabul's header for the 3-2. They're yeah. in a meaningless game. But of course that one is burning into my mind as well because it, it's coming from behind against them. I yeah. can't speak too loudly because you've just <laughs> finished her phone call and I may not get any tea. <laughs> <laughs> Go on about it. Uh, Absolutely. Oh, that's well, how it works. <laughs> well, can I, can, I, can I just say, Theo, what, one of the reasons I am so excited that my debut on the Spurs show has been this one yeah. is that I voted my top three Spurs goals of all time. Number one, Lineker's third goal in the 91 semi. Number two, Lineker's first goal in the 91 semi and number three, Gaza's first goal for the reasons you said earlier, which is in other words, it meant that we won. That game yeah. is so intensely yeah. my favourite game of all time. Oh, like, that's as a Spurs fan, the feelings were so pure that those three goals for me are beat beat everything. So you know what? I think that's a great way for us to wrap it up because you've, you've cool. basically paid very rich tribute to the game and the game that we've we've been discussing here. A game none of us will ever, ever, ever forget. A no. game we, we were privileged to witness in our own different ways. And just for the avoidance of doubt, I didn't throw anything at that coach. <laughs> Good man. Um, was, when I was at school... Why not? Uh, when I was in the 70s and the football violence was at the very height, there was almost a kind of pride, some kind of working class pride in smashing up the thing we loved the most. Um, I, looking back on it now, I just, I just can't believe what was going on in those football grounds. And I'm glad, Theo, I'm glad that a man of your standing in the community uh, <laughs> smirched himself with that sort of thing. Well, well, I know you're wrapping up, Theo, but I've yeah. just got to mention, although we hated the Arsenal matches, the, the worst violence... I remember was always against Chelsea. And I have yeah. to quote here, before you finish, the 75 game where it was us or them to go down. If you were in White Hot Lane that day, that was the most intense atmosphere I've ever experienced. It spilled out onto the pitch. Well, it, spilled been, on the pitch. it was spilled out on the pitch simply because too many people had got into the ground. They yeah. climbed over the fences. They got in somewhere. They were just, and people, I mean, we could have had a Hillsborough that day because of a yeah. cross going on. It was a rain. Well, a lot of Tottenham got in the away end, I think, is what happened. And then it all, yeah, it all spilled over. And that, but in those days, it was still on the, I remember watching, I wasn't at that game, but I remember watching it on the telly. They used to put it all on the telly. 
Delhi. And that was one of the lessons they learned, wasn't it? Anyway, let's not finish on that. Let's celebrate this yeah. wonderful game. Let's say thank you, YouTube, Facebook, and whoever else did it and put it on the telly for us. Brilliant. And um, it's the first time I, a lot of people are watching nostalgic games, but it's the first time I've done it. And I, and I, I couldn't believe how, how bloody wound up. I kept squaring and calling Dixon. The, oh. Anyway, thank you so much, Danny Kelly, for joining You're us welcome. today. Thank you, Stuart Maester, as well. I really appreciate you two guys coming. I had a hunch you'd be the men for this job, and you absolutely certainly were. Um, Pleasure we'll to see you both. Pleasure to see you both, too. And we'll be back next week, of course. I think Mike Lee's back next week. And don't forget the Daily Spurs show. Check in with that as well. And, uh, yeah, thanks a lot, guys. This is Theo Delaney saying, come on, you Spurs. Come on, you Spurs. Thank come you. on, you Spurs. Wasn't that a great podcast? Now, if you've got 90 seconds spare in your day, come and listen to ours. It's called What Has He Said Now? and is available wherever you've got this podcast. This is a Playback Media production. Get all the associated links for this podcast at spurshow.net. Sports Social Podcast Network.